So we started a series last week on the gospel, and I could hardly wait to keep going. I wanted to keep going last week, but I kept you 45 minutes. I didn't want to keep you any longer, <laughs> because I know people's attention spans only go for so long. But that really was only part one of the message, and I'm continuing it this morning. This series of messages leading up to Easter, and I know I say this often, because I'm always excited. You know me. But I, I mean it in... It sounds so trite. I really mean it this time. <laughs> I, okay, take this for what it's worth. But I have never felt so strong and passionate that a message and a series of messages is from the Lord for this church at this time as I have now. So I could be wrong. But I think that this is important. Uh, last week we talked about the gospel, what it is and how it is fundamentally an announcement that Jesus is Lord. This week, we are going to look at the shape of the gospel message, the shape of the gospel story. And I wanted to start by thinking about the questions that we ask in life. I, I'm, I'm teaching an online course right now for Christology students, and Christology is the study of figuring out who Jesus is. And one of the biggest difficult questions is how Jesus can be both God and man in one person. And so this is what churches throughout the centuries have debated and argued and tried to figure out. So I asked a seemingly simple question to them in the forums at the beginning of this week, but the question was deceptive because it really uncovered what they truly believed about the nature of Jesus. And the question was this, when Jesus cried out in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweat like drops of blood, God, if you're willing, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Is it, is it proper to say, from a theological point of view, that that was, the G, that was the human part of Jesus crying out? Now, don't answer that. <laughs> that was the question I asked. And it is a minefield of a question because it takes you to all the church councils throughout history and and you know what, I might get to that by the time we get to Easter and we're looking at the actual passion of Jesus. Uh, we, Lord willing, we will all be gathering together uh, with Pine Grove Fellowship for Good Friday. And uh, they asked me if I wanted to speak this year, so I'm like, yes! Uh, so I'm pretty excited about that, so I think that's where I, might, I may go in that message. But questions can be either well thought of or poorly thought of. They say when you're teaching that there are no bad questions, but that's a lie. There are bad questions. There's lots of bad questions in the world. We say that there are no bad questions, so we encourage people to ask more questions, but some people just ask bad questions. Bad questions, here's one type of bad question. There, there are bad questions that actually presuppose the answer. So they're asked in such a way that make you answer in a certain way. And this is what researchers always get into trouble with when they take surveys. They ask a question in a survey, but the way they ask the question influences the answer. And so one of those questions would be, how worried are you about the coronavirus? That's a bad question because it implies that you should be worried, right? It frames it, okay, I'm worried, where am I in my worry scale? So your only option is either to put yourself on that scale or to say, I disagree with the question. That's a question that presupposes the answer. Or another one, how much toilet paper should I stock up on? <laughs> that assumes that I should stock up on toilet paper, right? It presupposes the answer when the answer may not be the right... It, 
the question may just be bad. It may force you into an answer that doesn't make sense. It's funny. I, I, by the way, I've been back. I've, I've returned from Cuba for a full 13 days now, and so far no sniffle, so life is good. But when I was in Cuba, they had a toilet paper shortage, not because of the virus, just because it's Cuba. <laughs> and uh, when I went to my the house that I was staying at there in between teaching sessions, they had like uh, one roll of toilet paper, one ply, um, not the sort of stuff I would usually use, but it was presented as a gift. Like, this is precious here. Fortunately, I had been told ahead of time, so I brought a couple extra rolls, and I, I left them as gifts. I gifted toilet paper in Cuba, and I, I never in my wildest dreams thought that it would be a, an appropriate gift when I returned to Bracebridge, but apparently, uh, it is an appropriate gift these days, so maybe we could have like a toilet paper shower for people or if any, you know what, if anyone is short and anyone's stocking, let's redistribute the wealth here and, and make sure everyone has what they need to live a life of godliness. Um, <laughs> sorry. You know what they say about cleanliness. In these examples uh, that I gave you, I, I worded the question in such a way that it forced you to answer a certain way. And I'm afraid that we ask questions of the gospel that are bad questions. We ask the gospel a question that forces the gospel into a certain shape that it never had. But we're so used to asking this question that it's become second nature. We just assume that the gospel has to answer this question. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Just a reminder, this series will go until Easter, and I'm looking at the big themes of the faith. Last week and this week, we're looking at the gospel, what it is and what the shape of the gospel story is. But we're going to be looking at the righteousness of God and justification. We're going to look at grace. We're going to look at what it means to have faith. So basically, what is the gospel and how can we respond to it? I'm going to be drawing deeply on Romans as we go through. Romans 1, 16 to 17 is going to be a theme verse that we'll be looking at. And I do believe that this is deeply important. Let's read this theme verse now. I think I have it on the screen. I'll read it for you. For, and I hope that this is something that we'll all be able to say by the end of this course. I, I mean, of course, this, this series. I believe we can say it now, but with, with, with all we're going to learn over this next little bit, I think we'll be able to say it in a deeper way. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. We live in a selfish society. <laughs> I hope that wasn't a yes, amen, we do. <laughs> we live in a selfish society. Let me backpedal a little bit. We live in an individualistic society. What I mean by that is our minds, our worldview, our entire way of thinking. <laughs> you have a, a good wife. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Our worldview, our way of thinking is conditioned to think in terms of us as individuals. So when you think about who you are, you tend to think about you, your age, 
your gender, your hobbies, what you like to do, um, how much you weigh, all those things that go into making you, you. When, when you, if you were asked the question, who are you? You would probably answer in those terms. If you were to ask someone in biblical days, who are you? You know what they'd probably answer? I am the son of, and the son of, the brother of, the, the it, you would be defined by your relationships. And this may seem like a simple point, but it's a radical shift and it's hard to get our minds around. We live in an individualistic world where our primary concern is us as isolated people, right? Social distancing, leave room for Jesus between you this morning. We think of ourselves as isolated individual peoples, but in the ancient world, in the times when the gospel was, was lived out in Jesus Christ and it was written down, people did not think like that. They thought in terms of community, in terms of relationship. Who am I? I'm not a paddler who has a website who likes to read and pastors a church. No, I'm, I'm the, the, the son of David and Wendy. I am the husband of Don. I am the father of Ryan and Chase. I'm the pastor of this congregation. That's who I am in biblical terms. Seems simple, but our world is centered on individualism. And we have this myth that we like to tell ourselves. And it's been repeated in biographies and movies time and time again that the most, that the, the ideal way to live is to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, differentiate yourself from the crowd, and make something of yourself. Have you ever heard that expression? You need to make something of yourself. What's that imply? That implies that what you do for yourself is the most important thing you can possibly do because you're an individual first. We talk about Bill Gates, who, working from his garage, created the first Microsoft PC that, that influenced the whole world. And look what he did, that lone individual. Although I think the people around him may have something to say about that myth. Mark Zuckerberg launched Facebook from his dorm room, and it's taken over the world. One person with a dream and a vision, and boom, look what he's done to it for himself. We think about Rocky. Right, Rocky Balboa, the old film. He was just a uh, just an average old boxer, but you know what? He worked hard, and through his hard work and determination, he set himself apart from the crowd and made something of himself. I went to a concert. This was quite a few years ago. It was before I moved up here. I went to an Under Oath concert. Now, Under Oath is a Christian band. They are a very loud, screamo Christian band, sort of like rah, 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 is what you would hear if I was to play their music. I have a picture of the lead singer. So this is the concert I went to. And uh, I went to it in London. I was living in Petrolia. And it's funny because Petrolia is this little, uh, little farming community, right? And so I went with a bunch of youth from the church. We went to this concert. And we were dressed like people from a small farming community. <laughs> and we went to the concert. And there was a lineup outside. They hadn't opened the doors yet. And every person in that lineup was trying to look unique. And they all looked identical. Everyone had the same nose ring, the same chain, the same hair, the same type of jackets and ripped clothes. And, and we were driving in and we're looking at all these people trying to set themselves apart, to be an individual. Yeah, I'm rebelling against authority. I listen to loud music. I dress like this. Yeah, I'm my own person but they inadvertently created an entire community of people that looked all the same. 
uh, we were driving in and, and uh, one of the guys that was driving with looked and they said, oh, look at all the cute little emo kids. <laughs> <laughs> it was a fantastic concert, but that's the story for another day. We like to make think of ourselves as individuals, but the gospel isn't rooted in that sort of mindset. The gospel's rooted in a, in a community culture that was based on honor and shame. So what mattered was not what you made of yourself, but whether you brought honor to the family or not. Whether you lived in such a way that contributed to your community, that's what mattered. How does this play out today? We're individuals, we need enough toilet paper. I don't take as much as I can. How would this play out in the ancient world if they used toilet paper? Man, what did they do then? <laughs> Sorry, random thought. How can I, how can I use this in such a way that the community will be cared for? That's the difference. So we ask individually based questions of a community based Bible. We force the Bible to answer questions that don't make sense to it. You see where I'm going with this? So what's the question we ask of the gospel? How can I get to heaven after I die? That's our modern question that we ask. I'm not saying it's not an important question, but I'm, not, I'm saying that it's not the prime concern of the Bible. This is probably disturbing and shocking. By the way, I believe there is an afterlife, and I'm looking forward to it. Don't get me wrong in any of that. But the question how can I go to heaven after I die is not something that would have crossed the mind of anyone in the ancient world. When we think of the Jewish people, they were a community. What's the prime metaphor in the New Testament? We are fortunate, even though we're not Jews, God has welcomed us into his family along with the Jewish people. And that's how he showed his righteousness. So when we ask the question of the gospel, how can I get to heaven when I die? We come up with the answer, and I talked about the Romans Road answer last week, which is all good, true scriptures, but is only part of the answer. The gospel is bigger than individualism. The gospel, the vision of God for his creation involves all of his creation of, what, of, of which we as a people, as a community, are a part the gospel is an announcement, first and foremost. I shared last week that um, I actually shared from an ancient letter, if you remember, about the gospel of Caesar, that Caesar is Lord. And the gospel of Jesus is that, no, Jesus is Lord. The gospel is first and foremost a royal announcement, and it's bigger than individualism. It involves the entire world. And we are a part of it. It's not something that is primarily for me as an individual, but it's something that I can be a part of. We, as a community, can be a part of God's broader plan of salvation. And the core message of the gospel is this. Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, that means that everything else is not. Because there can only be one Lord. That's the gospel. That's the message. That's the proclamation. And now I want to share with you what the gospel is shaped like. You know, what's this symbol? Peace. peace. No victory. one went with victory? victory? It depends on your context. If that's peace or it's victory. Um, but the gospel is shaped like a bee. 
And for the gospel, we can go with peace or victory because they both work. The gospel story is shaped like a V. And I want to share this story with you now. This looks complicated, but it's not. I'm going to share the story as I go. The story, uh, th this is the shape of how the gospel has been preached. If you read all the times in the New Testament that the gospel has been proclaimed, you'll find that there are commonalities. There are things that are repeated. There's a basic shape of the gospel story that is told. And not every one of these things is told every time, but when you put it all together and you see the fullness of the picture, this is the shape of the gospel. This is the gospel story. It is that Jesus has always existed. When I say Jesus, maybe that's a little misleading. The Son of God has always existed. There, we, we talk about there never was a time when God was not. And it blows our mind, because how do you understand someone who's outside of time, right? This doesn't make sense. But God is eternal. And there was never a time when Jesus, when the Son of God was not there. The story of the incarnation, the story of the cross, begins with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in fellowship from all, from all eternity, choosing to create a good world for us to live in and to care for as his images. That's the start of the story. Jesus was with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity, but he became Flesh. And this is what we read in the Gospel of John, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in Christology class, that word became is really important because it's not a light word. The Word. By Word, we're talking about the Son of God who existed with God from all eternity. The Word became flesh. God united Himself with humanity in a way that can never be separated. That, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. But it's what we celebrate all our lives, that God didn't stay distant from this world, but he cares so passionately about us that he became one of us. And that hurt. It was not pleasant. We talk about the pain of the cross, but man, die, no. They, they, they didn't have disposable diapers. Like Jesus was born in a... I can't imagine going from being in the glory of the Father's presence to taking on the limitations of flesh and blood and living out a life with us. But that's what Jesus did. The Word, who always existed, became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus' life led to the cross. It led to death on the cross. After that, he was buried. And that's the low point of the V. The cross and the burial of Jesus are the low point of the V. This is the shape of the gospel story. Jesus always existed. He became one of us. He gave his life on the cross, and he was buried. But then the story gets better. Because he didn't stay dead. <laughs> Jesus, uh, the, the Bible says different things. It says that the same spirit which raised Christ from the dead dwell in you, will quicken our mortal bodies. So we're told that the spirit raised Christ from the dead. We're also told that God raised, that, that God was involved in not allowing the son to remain dead, but he was raised from the dead on the third day. And that, this is something they always point out. Jesus appeared to many people. 
to groups of people, to individuals. It wasn't just a hallucination. It wasn't just a spiritual vision. He actually showed up and people were amazed. We have the gospel accounts of that. He appeared to many people and now he is seated at God's right hand. So that's why it's shaped like a V. Jesus, who always existed with God from all eternity, came, became one of us, died a death on the, a humiliating death on the cross, but then was raised from the dead and ascended back into heaven, and he is seated at God's right hand. When we say seated at God's right hand, we don't mean he has a really comfy chair up there that he can finally relax in. That is coded language that means he has the authority of God. There, Jesus is Lord. And that's why I say if there's one way to summarize the gospel message, it's this. Jesus is Lord. When we say Jesus is Lord, it means Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. It means he is sovereign over all of this creation and all over this world. There's nothing that escapes his grasp. Jesus is Lord implies that he came and he died on the cross and he was buried and was resurrected. But this is the main point. This is the fundamental point. Jesus is Lord. He is with the Father. And the final point that is always in the original gospel preaching is that it's not over yet. See, we're living in, I've tried to explain this a few times. It's a little bit difficult. We're living in an era where two ages overlap. In one sense, we're still living in an age of sin and death where we get sick. That should be painfully obvious to all of us who watched the news this last week. But at the same time, the kingdom of God has broken into this world in Jesus who was raised from the dead. And when we are in Jesus, when we become Christians, Paul says we have been, we're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we're living with a foot in two worlds. In the one sense, we still get sick. We still suffer the pain of this world of sin and death. But in another sense, the new world is breaking forth. And one day, God will set everything right. That's the promise of the gospel. He is coming again. And everything will be set right. So the gospel story is shaped like a V. It begins with the eternal Son of God, with the Father, descending to earth, death on a cross, burial, resurrection, appearing to people, ascending into heaven, Lord at the right hand of the Father with a plan to come again. That is the message of the gospel. You may notice it's not a message about me or you. It's not primarily a message about how we can get somewhere. That's part of it, that, that comes. But it's important to remember in our individualistic society that the, the gospel is first and foremost a message about Jesus and how he is Lord, how Jesus is king. And there are many, many scriptures that talk about this, and I wanted to share some of them with you. Um, I'm not sure how many I'll do, but I just want to share some of these scriptures that that go through that V-shaped story. Actually, if you could put that V-shape back on, I want to I want to show you. This is from Philippians two. This is a beautiful one. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, right, starting at the top, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave, right, where it became flesh. Being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This, this part doesn't talk about his burial, but not every element is in every verse. 
Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's the gospel. It's a story about Jesus. And that's the shape of it. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Jesus was revealed in the flesh. Then it goes right through to vindicated in the Spirit. So raised from the dead by the Spirit. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the Gentiles, and believed throughout the world, and taken up into glory. Right? That shape. 1 Corinthians 15.3-9 I handed over to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most who are still alive today, some have died. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as if to one untimely born, he appeared to me. See the shape? Or how about Peter's message on the day of Pentecost? You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, I always have trouble with Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of powers and wonders and signs that God did among you. You yourselves know this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of those outside the law, but God raised him up, having freedom from death, because it's impossible for him to be held in death's power. Or how about this? You know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty we may become rich. Or one more. I could, I could go all day. This is the gospel story. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, right? From heaven to earth. God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law in order to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption. We, plural, may be welcomed into the family by adoption, community. That's why I redid that old song, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High, right? He came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. That's the shape of the gospel. I said those things so many times because we can lose sight of it. We can tend to think that the gospel is all about the cross. And the cross is the center point of the story. The gospel is the center of scripture and the cross is the center of the story of the gospel, but it's not the final word. The cross was the moment where Jesus took the sins of the world on himself, but it didn't end there. It ended with resurrection, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's why I loved it so much last week in worship practice when we sang, he rose from the grave, and the cross fell over. Not in terms of being disrespectful to the cross, but in terms that the cross has done, he's done his work on the cross. He's no longer there. Jesus doesn't stay here. Jesus is ascended and is Lord right now. That's the message of the gospel. So, not every aspect of the story is told every time. We, we are the people who are called to share the message of the gospel. And we don't have to sit people down and say, okay, write on a piece of paper number one to eight and list out all the points. But 
it's interesting that in all of this, there's always a way to connect with people. Ask the Spirit when you have an opportunity to share the gospel. Ask the Spirit of God to let you know what part should I start with? Where should I go? Because there's so much to this story. If you're talking to someone who just loves the created world we live in and is amazed by it, well, you could talk about the Son of God through whom all things were created and His glory with the Father. If you're talking to someone who's suffering, it's probably a good thing to remind them that, you know what? God suffered too. And start the story there. If you're talking to someone who's concerned about injustice, you can even start at the end and say, you know what? God will make things right. It doesn't look like it now, but this will happen. If you're talking to someone who has a low self-esteem, maybe feels worthless, you can talk about the became flesh. You know what? You may feel worthless, but God loved you. He loved us so much that he became one of us to reach us. Right? That's another way into the story. If you're talking to skeptics who just thinks this is all a myth, you can, you can point out the fact that when people were suffering and dying for this gospel, the reason they did it was because they saw Jesus resurrected. He appeared to many people. They wouldn't have died for nothing. See, the gospel is such a broad story. It allows us to connect with people through different parts. But no matter what part of the story you start with, it implies this whole shape. The gospel is the announcement, the royal announcement, that Jesus is Lord. But when you expand that, it starts with God, Son, from all eternity, coming down to the depths of despair on the cross, burial, being raised, to being seated at God's right hand. It's a story about God. So, final thoughts. I'm going to, I'm going to give you three final thoughts on this story before we, uh, we wrap up for the morning. The first thing, I've stressed it already, I will stress it again, it's that important. First and foremost, the gospel is not a story about us, it's a story about Jesus. The gospel is not a technique, the gospel is not a method, the gospel is not a script that we follow to get people, individuals to go to heaven after they die. The gospel is much broader than that. It's not, first and foremost, a story about us, but it's a story about Jesus. And it's the good news that Jesus is Lord. Now, I'm going to turn a little bit, and I've been emphasizing that the story is not about us so much because we are so individually focused as a society in the world right now. But I do have to also stress equally that the story deeply matters for us. And the story does become deeply personal to us. I wouldn't say individual, as if we're isolated from everyone, but personal. The gospel message is personal. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, we're told that Jesus died for our sins. The reason, the, the bottom of that V-shape, the death on the cross, the reason that this all happened was because of our sins. Jesus died in order to fix the problem of sin in this world. On the cross, now we're getting into some deep stuff, but on the cross, Jesus represented us. 
he stood there as a representative of all humanity. He stood there as the ultimate version of Adam, the ultimate version of Israel. He stood there representing us. So when he died, his life was a substitution for ours. Jesus died for us. And it's absolutely true to say that Jesus died for me, Jesus died for you, Jesus died for you, Jesus died for people. This is the extent to which he went through for us. He gave his life so that we could live. He, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so we have a special role in this creation. I, I hinted to it earlier, but when you're thinking about the whole picture of God in this world, God created, uh, we're told in the Bible, over seven days, the seventh day was the day of rest, the sixth day, the climax of the sixth day, the final most perfect act of God's creating was us. So next time you look in the mirror, think we, we are the best God could do. <laughs> That's not a slight on God. It may be tough for your self-esteem to take that. But when you look in the mirror, we are God's image bearers. What that meant was God created this world like a temple where he could dwell. And we are like the servants in that temple, the icons, the images. We represent God in this world, and it's our responsibility to tend and care for this world. Of course, sin has entered the world. We've disobeyed. We've rebelled. All that thing and chaos has happened. And, and it's played apart every aspect of creation from environmental concerns to interpersonal concerns with people and, and to systemic concerns in broader society of injustice. All of this is because of sin. And Jesus came and died for the sins of the world to take care of this. The story matters to us. And I'm going to be sharing in the weeks to come what our proper response to this story is. Because even though I've probably been shocking in the way I framed things at the beginning of this message, when we have faith in Jesus, we are given the promise of eternal life that begins now and goes throughout all eternity. And that is an amazing promise but it's situated within the context of being adopted as a family into God's life. So the story is about Jesus, but the story deeply matters for us because Jesus died for us. And finally, the gospel is the climax of Scripture. Everything in this Bible, this is a particularly heavy one, Everything in this Bible, with the exception of the pictures, because I don't know if they're inspired, but everything in this Bible, the entire story of this Bible, centers on the gospel. And the center of the gospel is the cross. The climax of the gospel is Jesus' enthronement as Lord. So everything in this Bible points us toward the message of the gospel. So when you read, when, if you're new to reading the Bible, start at Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and then go out from there. 
When the, uh, when the early church received the Spirit and started reading their Bibles and reflecting, they started seeing things in the Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, that they had never noticed before. They started seeing Jesus everywhere. When they read, read the story about Abraham taking his son Isaac to be sacrificed, they saw Jesus there, right? When they saw King David as the ultimate king of Israel who would do justice, they realized that, oh, that's just a shadow of Jesus, who is the ultimate king. When they read Proverbs and heard that wisdom cries aloud in the streets and makes her voice heard, they thought, my goodness, that's Jesus. When they read Isaiah and heard that there's a suffering servant who would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, they thought, that's Jesus. When the, when the early church recognized the gospel and started reading their Bible, they realized that everything in it points toward Jesus. So when you're reading your Bible, the gospel needs to be the center that we reflect towards in everything. That's one of the reasons I love the gospel uh, curriculum that we're doing downstairs with the kids, because it is Christ-centered. It is gospel-centered. Well, it's called the gospel project. It better be gospel-centered. But if you want to if you want to renew your Bible reading habits, start with the Gospels because that's the center of the Bible. That's the message to which everything points. So let me conclude. And then we'll come back and sing Hope of the Nations one more time. Ah, you know what? No. We'll go old school. Lord, I lift your name on high one more time. We all know that one. We'll all sing it loud. It's the gospel story. This is my conclusion. When I said the gospel is like a V, it puts the cross and the burial of Jesus at the very bottom. Because from a human perspective, that is the darkest moment, right? That would be the deepest moment of humiliation before the ascension. Even the language that we use, God sent his son. He was ascended into heaven. He descended into the grave. We, we even use that language down and up to speak about this. So when we think about the gospel, the cross is that low point. But you know when Jesus talked about the gospel, he inverted that. The cross for Jesus was the moment of his glory. I'll read you one more scripture. This comes from the gospel of John. Jesus was praying and he said, my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, this is the reason I came to this hour. And Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. Just before the darkest moment of the gospel story, Jesus cries for the Father to glorify his name, and then a voice came from heaven. I wish this would happen when I pray. <laughs> right? Lord, what about this? Well, you should. <laughs> if only it was that simple. But a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So you have this sense of the gospel story, right? Jesus was in the glory of the Father from all eternity, and he would be glorified as Lord. But this moment is not just the darkest, deepest moment of despair. He ends this little paragraph in the, in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. And we, we used to sing this song, Lift Jesus high, lift Jesus high. 
And we sing it happy, but he's talking about is being hung on a cross. So we probably should change the style of song that that is. But the point is, we see the cross as the moment of the deepest despair. And in one sense, it is. It is the dark part of the story. It is the end of the descent before he is resurrected and raised. But Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, right? That's when, that's the moment of his chief glory. So as we approach Easter and we reflect more on the cross and what Jesus has done for us, in the weeks to come we reflect on how we can respond to this. I just want, I, I will be keep, keep hinting towards this, that the gospel is an announcement. It's, an, it's a royal announcement that Jesus is Lord. That he who was with the Father from all eternity descended to death on a cross, was buried, was raised, appeared to people, was seated in authority at the right hand of the Father, and will come again. That is the gospel, and that's what we will be responding to. So one more time, the, the scripture that we have on the last slide. I am not ashamed of the gospel. You've heard the story. This is something that we believe. I am not ashamed of this gospel. I talked to you last week about how it doesn't make sense in the world. I am not ashamed of this gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Let's pray band, I'd invite you to come back up. Our Father in heaven, the gospel is so big, it's so expansive, it's so much more than we could ever possibly imagine or dream up on our own. When we think about the, the depths, Lord Jesus, to which you descended to bear our sin and to heal our human nature, and to draw us back into your family. It is, it is deeply, deeply humbling. I pray, Lord, that the, the shape of the gospel that we talked about this morning will, 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 will continually be going through our minds this week. As we read the Bible and as we read it, I pray that we'll start to see that shape everywhere we go. And Lord, that we, we would even begin to live that gospel by imitating you by selflessly hum humbling ourselves to care for others. Lord, it gives a whole new perspective on that scripture that the last will be first and the first will be last. Last, if you, Lord Jesus, descended to become our servant. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the cross. And thank you that you did not stay there. We praise you, Lord. We exalt your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.